Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 43. Uh, even though it was easily a month and a half ago, I uh, wanted to say thanks to Jason Eakin for uh, being here for the Prestige episode. And also wanted to call attention to, you may have noticed this already, uh, I've started doing a new thing uh, that are sort of like More Than One Lesson supplements, but they're just called minisodes. So I recorded one uh, last week, so you can see that in iTunes. You can also find it on the website. Uh, and so today is going to be the, <laughs> what was supposed to be like a month and a half long series has turned into all summer long, uh, due to illness and scheduling conflicts. So, uh, so yeah, the, the series that for those that don't uh, recall, well, if you don't recall, I mean, just go back and listen to Ratatou- the Ratatouille episode and then the Prestige episode and you'll be all caught up, but, uh, I'll go ahead and recap anyway. Uh, the series is films about art. And with Ratatouille, of course, we learn that there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to be an artist. Uh, some people, especially in the Christian community, might say, might frown on that and say that it's not important. But of course, it's just as important as anything else. Uh, with the Prestige episode, we learned that respect for the audience and a genuine love for the audience and a desire to communicate something uh, can make for really great art. But uh, but uh, often the best way to respect the audience is to make the best art possible and not necessarily pander. So it's kind of uh, walking that tightrope. But uh, And then at the end of the Prestige episode, for a solid 20 minutes to, to a half hour, Jason and I started uh, heading down a path that uh, makes for a very good transition. I wish that there wasn't a month and a half in between. Uh, a very good transition into today's episode. Uh, and I've got a guest here. Uh, as well, he was on the Woody Allen episode, and now he's back because he just couldn't get enough. It's uh, Robert Hornack. Robert, how are you? Hi, Tyler. I'm fine. Okay, good. So, what's going on? Well, that's very broad. Yeah. What's going on? You can answer it any way you want. Uh, well, uh, I think I may have some cat hair in my eye. Oh, okay. Um, but I'll I'll push through. Okay. I think it'll be fine. Um, this is, I believe, the last time we recorded together. It was an afternoon. Mm-hmm. Now it's uh, it's an evening after work. Yeah, and my mind is not as clear as it would be on a Sunday afternoon. Right. Um, outside of that, I think things are fine. All right, so I'm going to be taking the reins on this one. It sounds please like. please do. All right, well, I'm very glad that we waited for you. Uh, <laughs> month like, and a half, <laughs> exactly. Right, so I, I was done sick. This three weeks ago. You had uh, scheduling issues. Yeah, with, uh, was, family in town. Uh, like I went out of town, and I had family in town, right. and lots right. of stuff going on. Right. So, uh, but and, I'm, and I'm still getting over slightly. Mm-hmm. I think I'm on the the remnant end of having some kind of a cold thing this past weekend, so okay. that's where I was. Apologize. Okay. Po- apologies. But you're you. here now, and that's all that matters. Hmm. Okay. Let's leave the past in the past, Robert. We're looking forward. Exactly. Yes, we can. Let's not get political, all right? <laughs> I actually... Okay, here's an interesting thing, and I might still do it. I don't know. Um, I was going to... Because I've got these minisodes now. And those basically are just an excuse for me to be self-indulgent. Right. And um, don't tell anybody. Oh, wait, we're recording. Anyway, so uh, I was fighting this instinct inside me. I've become, I'm very, I'm not say, I wouldn't say I'm politically aware because I don't know much about events or things that are happening in the world, but I am fascinated by political theater. And of course, I, it's because it really is just a, it's like watching 12 Angry Men, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and I, it's. With a cast of interesting character actors, right? Some old, some young, mm-hmm. and uh, and you get to watch as they debate each other, and it's really fascinating and, and tragic. 
and often, yes, quite tragic. I'm sorry, Tim Pawlenty. You just didn't. You just couldn't make it. And so, uh, so yes. So in watching like the Republican debates and what's happening with that primary, um, and I'm usually interested in both sides. But of course, this year it's this election. It's just the primary. It's just the Republican primary. And uh, and I actually was fighting the urge to like endorse somebody like in a minisode because oh, there, wow. there is one guy that I really like more than the others and okay. uh, he why not use this as your soapbox it's your podcast I, I, I was thinking that and part of me is like well I guess what I'm saying is like well if you're a, Repu- if you're a Republican you're going to vote in the primary provided of course he's still in the primary vote for this guy over here mm-hmm. um, of course he'll, he'll lose to either Mitt Romney or Rick Perry but was it John Huntsman no. Was it Ron Paul? No. Was it the Godfather Pizza guy? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, let's not let's not do this. Although we've narrowed it down now, there's only a few more left. Okay. That's but uh, so it's it's it is interesting because wh- I feel like once you start going down that direction, you really start to feel like, well, all of my opinions are interesting. No, no, no. It's debatable whether or not my movie opinions are interesting, right. much less my religious opinions. Now we start getting into political, and it's like, okay, we've gone too far. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I I, I will say, oddly enough, the first thing I thought of when you said this was episode 43 and I'm the guest, mm. 43, George Bush. I don't know. That's just the first thing I thought of. Oh, okay. You can interpret that as good or bad. I, I, you know what? I have absolutely no interpretation of that. Good. Perfect. Indeed. Okay. I, I played my hand correctly then. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you, you're very sly, Robert. <laughs> All right. Enough of that. I, I, oh, we've only been going six minutes. Usually by the time we get to it on Battleship Pretension, it's, it's like, like 45 30, minutes. It's like 35 to 45 minutes I the last later. one was like 40 minutes. Probably, yes, because yeah, I was yeah. telling that extended story. So, um, all right. So the movie that we are, we're going to be talking about, the, the last film in my, my series here, is a film that, uh, for people who listen to Battleship Pretension, you know that this was much to my surprise, and in some cases, my own dismay. It was my favorite movie of last year. That's striking. A striking fact. I, I know. And it is, of course, Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Now, uh, I will get some of the things out of the... I'll get some things out of the way. I am not a huge fan of Darren Aronofsky. I like The Wrestler, but that's almost in spite of Aronofsky. Okay. His his uh, choreography of the wrestling, both as far as, you know, the actual choreography and cinematography and editing, that was great. That okay. was really wonderful. And, of course, the performances were solid. But, and Dave and I have talked about it before, we, we feel like he sometimes judges his characters a little bit. Um, and then, of course, I, I, don't, I don't really care for Requiem for a Dream. Um, it's hard to watch. Hard to watch, but that's as it should be. Mm-hmm. But it's also it's the way in which in which it's hard to watch because it's, it's in it's, your face. Yeah, it's very flashy. Very flashy, as if to say like film school. Yes, this is di- uh, yes. One could say that. Um, so not only do I not like Darren Aronofsky, but this was this sounds terrible. It was a film about ballet, <laughs> and I've only got room in my heart for one movie about ballet and that's the red shoes Ooh, yes which is a wonderful film it is and so uh <laughs> and so part of me is like oh why does this have to be an oscar contender why do i have to go see this so i why do i have to have a movie podcast so i have to talk about this and so i went in to the film not at all expecting to like it i went in completely begrudgingly 
And for the first, uh, you know, 20 to 25 minutes of the film, I'm just like, yeah, all right, I get it. <laughs> and then here we are. Uh, it won me over. I, I would not go so far as to say that it is a perfect film, not by any stretch of the imagination. And as I talked about with my Avatar episode, if a film doesn't have, like, engaging characters and is not written very well, then usually I don't care for it. And I don't think Black Swan was written very well. I do think it has good characters, but I don't think it was written that well. And yet, I do have a certain degree of... And I've, I've talked about this plenty on, on BP, whether it be about Black Swan or, or other films. I have a great deal of admiration for a director who will just jump in headfirst to explore something that I don't think even he totally knows what he is exploring. Um, he just feels like there's something inside him and he needs to tell a story. Um, of course, an example of this is like Apocalypse Now. Um, and Black Swan, it's, it's, the, thematically, it's a little elusive. You know, I mean, in this episode, we're going to be sort of nailing things down a little bit more. But uh, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of slippery. Uh, can and you it's re- not easy to sum up? Go on. Can you recall? Uh, you said like twenty minutes in, twenty five minutes in. What mm-hmm. was? Do you recall what was going on in the film when you decided this is worth paying more attention to than your attitude when you came in? I think it was. I think when it really started to, and it might have been more than twenty minutes in. I don't totally recall, but it. I think it's when it turned from just a drama about this this girl who demands too much of herself. Which is fine. A good movie can be made of that. Um, when it turned from that into this weird kind of... I mean, look, we all know it. Polanski-esque uh, psychological horror film that was that's much more interested in not merely showing us this person, but getting us to understand, see the world through her very twisted eyes. And... I would say that that's it, actually pretty pretty close to the front of the film. Is it? Okay. Well, there, so I mean, it might seen, even be less than 20 minutes. Well, right at the, at the top of the film, you see her um, in a subway. Mm-hmm. And she sees someone, like a doppelganger. You see right. her see someone that she thinks looks a lot like her, or we think yeah. looks a lot like her. And she's got that curious look on her face. And so yeah. automatically, you know, something's up right. that's, uh, that's, you know, ultra real. Or And I think perhaps, and stuff like that is, uh, not to imply that that's, over the top or anything, but for some reason that I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then like when they really start and she doesn't start peeling off skin until well into the film. Sure. But you know what I mean? Like little, just little moments where they just are just go deeper and deeper into this, into horrific imagery Mm -hmm. and imagery that quite frankly, and this goes back to what I was saying about Aronofsky is that I think a lesser director would have been somehow afraid to jump into imagery that many would say is ridiculous and almost laughable. Like the idea, like the weird scene where she sort of turns into a bird. You know what I mean? Like little things like that where it is silly, but by tapping into the character's emotion and how she must feel in that moment, as ridiculous as it is, it, 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 plays into the horror and that's what i that's what i like about it, is another filmmaker would have been like oh it says here in the script i know that he I, you know he was responsible for for some of it but like oh it says here in the script she uh in this little fantasy sequence she turns into a swan yeah that's silly we're not doing that but rather than that aronofsky was willing to just 
just go with it and see where he wound up. And I, I respond to that way more than, maybe even more than I should, but I, I find it an admirable quality. And it's invigorating to me. The film wound up being quite invigorating. I think we probably came at the film from uh, slightly different perspectives. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you came at, uh, you know, not, not liking Darano- Aronofsky, mm-hmm. um, not liking ballet films, mm-hmm. per se, except for the Red Shoes, um, and not expecting a whole lot. I believe, if memory serves, I went into the theater after the accolades had already started to pile up. Mm-hmm. And so I was expecting a little bit more than I got. No. And uh, the, the silliness that you refer to... Um, is it's not evident to me while watching the film. I watched it again now twice, mm-hmm. you know, in preparation for this. Not that I prepared per se, but yeah. um, it it's sort of couched in this. Uh, you you can't tell if he knows that it's silly, but the tone of the film is please take me seriously. Mm-hmm. So these silly things inside of a a, a tone that is not silly. Mm-hmm. This is expecting you to take it seriously is a it, it butts up against each other. They butt up against each other, and it makes me not like it because I, I don't know what the filmmaker wants me to feel. And I think the and usually a film that is inherently melodramatic and requires us to take it seriously that usually sort of turns me off. Um, except in this case, I was willing to go with it because. I feel like the tone of the film takes its cues from the main character. And she is a character who takes herself and her pursuits and what's going on in her life very, very seriously. She does not have, as far as I can tell, a sense of humor about anything. And so everything that's going on within her is tumultuous and it's life or death and everything is very big. And so, and I do think, well, okay, this is purely hearsay on my part. I do think that Aronofsky w- would see a sequence like her turning into the, the swan. Uh, I think he would see that as ridiculous. Now, the reason I say that is because how could anybody not? Uh, but he doesn't play it as such because, again, he's, I feel like he's taking his cues from her. And that's why... I don't know. I think, I, I, I think that's why I'm willing to forgive it all of its... Uh, not all of its, but most of its excesses because... It really, it is interested in putting us in her mindset rather than standing outside looking at her. I buy that. And I, I mean, I've, obviously the movie is very well received. Um, a lot of good reviews who seem to, the ones that I've read, seem to acknowledge the fact that there is a, a certain level of silliness mm-hmm. and bizarreness or even cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit on the nose material. Mm-hmm. But but it, it that that is absorbed in a greater uh, statement about you know pursuing your obsessions, mm. pursuing your dreams, the kind of toll it takes on you, which is what we're talking about today. Um, I, I could not see beyond those things. Honestly, I was sitting yeah. in the theater, and as those moments piled up, I was becoming more and more angry hmm. because I, 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 there's this sense of pretension, um, portentousness about Ooh. every moment like mm-hmm. that that you're supposed to take it as if you have never seen something like that before, Mm -hmm. as if this is the first time anything like that's ever been put on the screen. And certain images, like her legs cracking into a bird leg, you know, maybe I haven't seen that. I have not seen that before. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But those feel like shock moments that are cheap um, when stacked up against other moments that are just flat-out silly Mm -hmm. um, and other moments that are just flat-out 
please take me seriously with a, with no silliness going on whatsoever. Mm-hmm. All of these things just kind of combine into sort of a pretension salad, if you will. Mm-hmm. I wish I could backspace over that phrase. But anyway, that's 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 the <laughs> phrase I have in my head at the moment. And uh, I, it's just not enjoyable. Not enjoyable. And it's and for me, I mean, I already I already made a comparison with Polanski before, and I and you know some people uh, people who have been critical of the film say that it is sort of Polanski light, and I could see that. Um, but I would comp- I compare it to something like Rosemary's Baby, which that has plenty of moments of silliness. Now I think the difference is that I think Polanski definitely knows those moments are silly, but. Rosemary, I can't, I can't think of a silly moment in Rosemary's. Oh, anything baby. having to do with the neighbors, even though the neighbors turn out to be okay. evil. Like the the performances. Who's it? Ru- uh, Ruth Gordon, right? And I don't remember the the, the guy, unfortunately. But uh, but like everything with the neighbors is silly, and I think Polanski wisely. I'm I. Rosemary's Baby is a better film than Black Swan. I, I know that, Absolutely. but uh, but that's the thing is Rosemary doesn't think this stuff is ridiculous. Or if she does, she also recognizes that there's weight to it in her own life. Just because it's ridiculous doesn't mean it doesn't matter to her. It has consequences in her life. And so when comparing it to like to Polanski, that is the one I compare it to the most. Not merely because both of them have female protagonists uh, who are slowly but surely possibly going insane, but also uh, that, and I sound like a broken record, but that it's taking its cues Mostly from that. And I don't necessarily... And again, like, this is all... It it flies in the face of what I usually like. I usually don't like movies that are incredibly uh, pretentious. Um, And I think if this were... If the film were not as focused on character, and if it were only focused on crazy imagery, ridiculous or otherwise, but taking it seriously... Then I think I would have I would label it as yes pretentious that's and and I can totally write it off, but be, but because um, because we're seeing it through the eyes of of a rather demented character, I think I'm much more willing to to kind of go with the flow, and also I th- oh, I'm sorry you're about to say something. Why is she demented? I mean, how, why do you define her as demented? Um, that first off, I think I'm overstating when I say that. Uh, I would say she's demented primarily because of what, everything that we see in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as her actions and her behavior, it really is just someone who is cracking under the pressure. Possibly having a nervous breakdown is one way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Cracking under the pressure is another, and this is how it manifests itself in her life. As you know, crazy as that is. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, you mentioned that, uh, that you saw the film in the midst of the accolades and I think that's, I did too. And I think, or yeah, like Golden Globes, uh, Oscar nominations were about to come out and everyone said it was going to be a front runner for nominations, that it wasn't going to win anything except possibly actress, but that it was definitely going to be nominated for a lot of things. And so, uh, so yeah, both of us saw knowing full well that, oh, this is how people are viewing it. But when you watch the film, and this, you know, with Oscar-caliber Oscar movies, um, a thing that always gets me is, is the film trying to win Oscars or is it trying to do something else? And I don't get that vibe from Black Swan because, frankly... I don't see how anybody could make that film and think, oh, yeah, the Academy's absolutely going to embrace this, um, except possibly in, the, in some of the acting categories. 
but that's but that's basically it. And so, um, why do you think they did go for it then? I have, you know what? I have no idea. It might it, it might be because uh, it was Aronofsky's turn, quote unquote. Like he'd been turning out some some interesting work, and every once in a while, as as you know, and I'm I'm very cynical about the Academy, but every once in a while, the Academy wants to show that they are edgy, sure, and that they uh, they have their finger on the pulse of of like what uh, you know more indie audiences like, even though I wouldn't say that Black Swan's an indie film. Uh, it's an indie-minded film, if not uh, if not in, in the way of budget. And so I think, they, I think they saw a film that, as weird as it was, they could embrace because of who made it, who was in it, and some of the subject matter. And so I think that's, that's what they did. And I will say this, wisely... One of the nominations that everyone expected it to get, it did not, and I was very happy with that. Which was my uh, Mila Kunis, who she I think she did a very good job. But like a lot of people saying, oh, she's definitely going to be nominated, and she wasn't, and I was happy for that. You were happy she, she was not nominated, yeah, because uh, you know it's nothing personal to her, but that's not an Oscar caliber performance. No, she's a uh, if if any who would who should be the uh, like if there was a supporting actress from or was there? There no. wasn't, not for that, no. But Barbara Hershey, Barbara I thought Hershey's was great. Yeah, I thought she was very good. Yeah. But uh, so, okay, so we've gotten some of our, you know, and I'm not really complaining about it, but I will absolutely cop to the fact that it is, you could call it pretentious, you can call it silly, you can call it all those things, and in a way, you're right. Um, and I don't often find myself in this, I, I don't often find myself in this position where there's a movie that has f- flaws, I would say, but I still respond to. I don't think it's the best film of last year, but it was. I couldn't help it. It was my favorite, and it took a lot to take down Toy Story three, which wow. is a wonderful film, you know. But uh, it was Toy Story three and Social Net. You know, it was, mm-hmm. there was. It wasn't a great movie la- year last year, but there were some great movies, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and for that to just immediately jump to the top because as we were driving home, uh, my wife asked me like, "So what do you think from Black Swan?" From Black Swan, thank you. Uh, just in general, no, just driving home from somewhere. <laughs> um, as we were driving home from Black Swan, she's like, so what did you think? And I said, like, I uh, I think that's my favorite movie of the year. Like, And I don't say that casually or lightly. And I usually don't say it immediately after seeing the film. But just somehow, I, I, I was so, as I've said before, energized and invigorated by it. Mm. Um, because of the way it deals with this like the intangible nature of art and the relationship between the art and artist um and how much you should be willing to lose yourself and that sort of thing Mm. i don't know it's just uh it really surprised me how much i like that movie but that doesn't mean it's a perfect film i think i don't even really know how to how to say this (laughs) without sounding pretentious myself okay are you going to confront me about something no, no, no. Well, okay. not really, not really. I'm, I'm not a <laughs> condemning person, but I appreciate that. Um, it just seems to me that thematically there would be enough things in there. I mean, this is a Christian po- po- podcast, you know, where we we think about films and th- through the prism of our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, aren't there enough things in that movie thematically that you go, wait a minute, this? How can how can I feel so invigorated by this movie that seems to kind of like break some molds in terms of what what is entertainment you know and you know like watching somebody pull feathers out of their torn Mm -hmm. flesh you know cronenberg-esque yeah you know is this is this is is that what invigorates me um rather than the theme of 
of like certain themes making you judge it, like judge judge against it. For instance, um, and these aren't necessarily my judgments. I'm just mm-hmm. sort of playing devil's advocate here, if you will. Okay. Um, <laughs> guest host, the devil, apparently, is here. Um, You're not the guest host, by the way. You're just the guest. The guest? Yeah. The sidekick? Yes. <laughs> oh, You're no. the sidekick for this episode. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I need a horn. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... I don't know. You, you've got you're, you're following. I'm just like making this up as I go. Okay. I haven't thought this through. Um, just asking you. You're following a person, Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. What's her name in the movie? Nikki, Ni- Nina Sayers. N- Nina. You're following Nina from a a point of already being in a state of of, of uh, intense need for validation. Mm-hmm. Um, you follow her through all of these scenes where she confronts people or people confront her about her willingness to do certain things in order to achieve what she wants. Mm-hmm. Um, those things and the pressure to do those things ends up cracking her up to the point where she transforms into the black swan, mm-hmm. literally in her mind, mm-hmm. if, if you can say that, literally in her mind on the stage, for us, the audience, um, into the black swan, which is the personification or the swanification, I don't know, the, the, the birdification of, <laughs> of, of, of the evil that is innate in all men you mm-hmm. know so and, and this is supposed to be a triumphant moment the film tells us that this is a triumphant moment by everything about that moment mm-hmm. so when you walk away from the movie and you go I'm in I'm, again just devil's advocate um, walk away from the film I'm invigorated by the by the craft of the filmmaking of Aronofsky's mm-hmm. choices um, and yet the movie seems to preach to use a buzzword um, the lesson of you get to this point of perfection by going through the mill of uh, letting letting this standard fall away, mm-hmm. um, letting this personal policy fall away, whatever you want to call it, um, to get there. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems to me that one would walk away, a Christian would walk away from that movie going, wow, that's the state of mankind in the world, in the godless world, as opposed to, I want to go out and make a movie. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Devil's advocate here. Yeah. Just asking. Uh, well, for me, I, I actually like that ending because, well, it's it's twofold, and I'll compare it to another film uh, in a moment that I think has a similar ending, which is as I as I said before, it is a triumphant moment. But is a tri- is it a triumphant moment for us or for Nina? If it is a triumphant moment for Nina, then it perfectly it makes sense. The film hasn't judged her so far; it shouldn't. It's not going to judge her now. We are seeing the world through her point of view, for, through her perspective, and so the fact that something as screwed up as this, the the fact that whether it's whether it's real or not, that she's losing her life to have achieved this perfection, and to her that's a good thing, and the, for the film to, in, I don't know how it would do this, but for the film to. Just at the very end, after a movie in which we've seen everything through her eyes, for the film to suddenly swoop back and say, look how pathetic this woman is. It would be disingenuous. I'd have much more of a problem with that, and it probably would not have been one of my favorite movies. Uh, But I think the film, in totally committing to her mindset and her philosophy, I think that does far more to make us, to repel us from that, that attitude than if it were to 
artificially change its view within the film. I think by going full tilt in her direction only and seeing what the eventual consequence of that is, even if she doesn't realize the consequence, we do. And I think that's, that's how it, why it manages to be so powerful. Um, because it's, you know, it requires you to think. It requires you to feel and realize, like, oh, she feels triumphant, but do I? Should I? Why does she? Um, and it goes back to, you know, when I, uh, <laughs> when I was writing skits for my church in uh, Nixon, Missouri, I found that I, because uh, I had read all kinds of, like, Christian skits in these various books, and I never liked them because they always had, they had a, always had too much of a cap on the end. Mm. I tended to like, I tended to write skits in which a character was heading down the wrong path and then suddenly saw the right path and then conti- but then continued on their way wow. because to me I liked the idea that the audience would would be frustrated by the end of it and be like ah oh, don't you realize what you could have had hmm. why are you content to do this you know because it's I don't know I like that it's that it leaves it open a little bit and it leaves I think the audience is much more engaged when a film is a little Ambiguous, and I don't even think that Black Swan is ambiguous, but a little ambiguous about how it views the character's choices, as opposed to if it puts a nice cap on and says, like, yeah, she died, that's what she gets. Because then we're like, yes, that is what she gets. Okay, I'm done thinking about this now. Um, and I, I would say that a film that uh, the ending to Black Swan, a film that it reminds me of is There Will Be Blood, mm. in which you have a character who has been, frankly, heading towards that ending from the very beginning of the film. You know, it's actually, now that I mention it, the film's, the arc of the characters are very similar because Daniel Plainview, it's not like he's a good guy gone bad by the end. He's a bad guy who's been given unlimited resources. Right. And that's, which thus makes him worse. He doesn't have to engage with society anymore. And so, and so his ending is a little bit, now, we may be far away from him as he declares, I'm finished, but the very fact that when I was in the theater, and I saw, I saw it twice in the theater, when I was in the theater watching There Will Be Blood, people were literally chuckling when he was chasing uh, Eli around with the bowling pin. Like, they were laughing, because to them, they're like, yeah, get that charlatan. Yeah. And then he gets him. And they, stop, and they do stop laughing at that point. But the film is like, yeah, there we go. At no point, you know, we don't think like uh, we don't get any regret from uh, Daniel Plainview. We don't get anything like that. We just get the pure fact and the natural consequence of where he's going. And if the film had pulled back and had him start to regret or have somebody condemn him, then I think it would have been it would have been too insular, I think. And so, to me, Black Swan is like that, and I and I that's what I like about it is that is that it doesn't let us off the hook. We're in we're in this, and this is what it is like for this character, and that's what it's going to be like for us. And how disturbing is that? And that's why that's that's what I like about it. That's one of the things I like about it. Okay. So. <laughs> well, I I asked it, and I. I'm sorry. Did I? No, no, no. I went. Way too long. No, we're talking didn't. about a movie. It's fine. Of course. No, I, I was actually just curious. I mean, it just kind of came to mind as you were talking previous to my question mm-hmm. about that. And I, I'm, I'm not certain that it is as clear as you state. Um, 
I'm not I'm not quite certain that we know how Aronofsky feels about this character. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, the film is through her through her eyes. I mean, mm-hmm. every chance he gets, he puts a subjective camera angle, mm-hmm. and they're wonderful. One of the one of my favorite parts of the film are these sub- subjective camera angles, like mm-hmm. her POV. Um, they're brilliantly done and brilliantly edited in. Um, but he himself, I'm not certain that there's a consistency about how he feels about her. And and to say that the, the end is not murky, to say that the end is the end result of how he thinks that she should end up, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's the case. I mean, he 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 starts her off. Again, it's just I'm just kind of rambling in a way, but he starts her off at an, a negative place. He's, she's already at a negative place. Mm-hmm. Um, he proceeds to beat her up uh, through these situations f- for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's literally no escape. There's no one to help her escape. There's no escape for her from the path that she's that she's uh, headed toward, mm-hmm. which I guess is the uh, the personification of evil, <laughs> or mm-hmm. however you want to word that. You know, she is. She becomes the black swan. In this transformative moment for her. Um, part of me, for like a couple of days, uh, for a couple of days after I saw it, I was like, that, that was ridiculous, that was pretentious, that was full of silly moments. Uh, but for a couple of days after that, I was like, wait, maybe it was a, maybe it was a dark comedy. Maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe it's a satire of something. Maybe, wh- but what, what is it satirizing? Is it satirizing ballet? I don't know, it's too, too easy. Is it satirizing the, uh, the, the willingness of, most people to to uh, turn away from that which they feel or have been taught is good in order to um, pursue something that they feel is larger that can make them a better person. She says she wants to be perfect, mm-hmm. but I wonder why it didn't kind of catch in her own throat when she said, "I want to be perfect." When she's being presented with the options for or the the, the sort of like. ABC for how to get to perfection, which is be imperfect. Mm-hmm. You know, go out and touch yourself. You know, go out <laughs> and go out and live a little. Two mm-hmm. two different characters say that mm-hmm. uh, to her: live a little. I believe. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, Tomas does. Yeah, and I think. Like I says. think. Uh, oh yeah, what's her name? When I think go, Lily. Also, when they does. go out on the town, they say yeah. she says, "Live a little." Um, That's so, a great Mila Kunis, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you could have seen me, listeners, um, audience, I don't know. So. I don't know. Again, I'm just off the cuff here. I, it just seems like that there, there are all those moments, and we're inside of her head. And then there are moments, uh, both of them sexual, where, where we're on the outside of her, and we are Aronofsky looking at her. Mm-hmm. Um, one moment is when she's masturbating, and the other moment, can you say that on the show? <laughs> yes, that's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the other moment is when she's having a lesbian love scene. Can you say that on the show? Yes. Oh, good. Um so she's masturbating and she's having now I lesbian. I feel judged. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> these are the words. These are the actual words. It's fine to say them. And these two moments, uh, I, it just for me, maybe it's just my upbringing. I don't know, but it just seems like those two moments. Suddenly, it was Aronofsky putting in scenes that that were good for him, if you know what I mean. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It just it's like it, it. It became not her movie. It became Aronofsky's movie. For, and there are other moments too. Um, not to mention the fact that uh, it seems like if you want to talk about the film being silly, it's it's not silly. The kind of silly that like makes you laugh. It's the mm-hmm. kind of silly that goes, "What are you doing?" Um, but there are a couple of moments that are actually played for laughs. One is I, I didn't really pick this up till the till the second time I saw it. 
but when they're on on the town, mm-hmm. you know, she's learning to live it up, uh, learning to live. And the waiter comes over and asks me, like, is there enough cheese on your on your burger? You got enough cheese?" And she goes, "I do now." Or something, looking at, at him because he's cheesy, or you're cheesy. Mm-hmm. No waiter on planet Earth would ever say, "Got enough cheese?" Yeah. It was a pure setup for her to say that so that we would laugh along with her. And the other moment, sadly enough, is the masturbation scene, <laughs> um, where it where it, it it really does. I can say that it's played for laughs because it got the only laugh from the audience that I saw mm-hmm. it with. Um, when she she's like in the middle of that no. exploration, and she. Uh, <laughs> And she uh, and How she turns. How does your euphemism sell, sound <laughs> worse, worse than the actual thing? I think it's because I look so innocent um, <laughs> and young. So, but she turns and sees her mom sleeping there, and it just seems and it's like played for this like big laugh. Mm-hmm. And it's that talk about disingenuous. It just seems like that's disingenuous. If we're actually supposed to be inside of her head, inside mm-hmm. of her uh, experience mm-hmm. um, throughout the film, and then suddenly there's this moment where we get to laugh at her pain or shame or whatever that moment is. If you, it's funny because it, in the audience, everyone laughed at it. When I was watching it alone, it was like a really sad, depressing moment. Um, does that say something about the audience? or about Did he craft it so that we would laugh? I don't think... Say. I'll, I'll say this, like, because that is an interesting moment because uh, in my theater, people laughed as well. And it could be a number... It could be a number of things. And... If Aronofsky did not consider these things, then that means he sh- it's maybe a bad choice or he could have done it better. Because, cause yeah, I mean, the camera, it's not purely subjective. We're not seeing it completely through her point of view. But, I mean, it's, it's in close. It's really, you know, it's very sensual. Like, what she is doing is very sensual. And then suddenly, I mean, it jumps to far away. And then we see... And then we see her see her mom, and then she, you know, gets jarred back into, uh, oh, I can't let myself totally go here. Um, and admittedly, people laughed at that, but it could have been a laughter of any number of things. It could have been a laughter of extreme discomfort. It could have been a release of tension, because as we're watching that, there's any number of any 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 number of different kinds of tension going on and then a sudden release of it. Um, and I think, and I do think I agree with you. I think that if, when watched on its own, that is actually incredibly sad. Um, and my, my first thought was when I saw that it was like, Oh, that's weird. Why is it jumping outside so that we kind of laugh at what she's doing? And then I realized, no, that's how, well, I'll bring this back around to me. Um, Cause that's what I do. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Where is this going? Well, for okay, for example, let's say... Okay, one thing, I, I don't dance in public, all right? I don't dance in private, but <laughs> I don't dance is what I'm saying. But I certainly wouldn't dance in public because let's say I even... W- I was out with my wife at a wedding or something like that, and we just started dancing, and I was just letting myself go and having fun. There's a part of my brain that would immediately jump outside myself looking back at me and say... That guy looks like an idiot. And that, it's usually that thought that keeps me from doing it. It's, you know, I, I enjoy, I love music, and often there are times when I feel like dancing, but I don't know how, first off, I don't know how to dance, um, and so, so I wouldn't even know where to start, but 
that idea of being judged or more specifically just being watched. And in this case, she literally is being, well, she's not being watched, but there's someone there that at any moment could open her eyes and look at her. And it's the person who's been watching her her whole life. And so it goes from her point of view to someone else's point of view, but that someone else is still very much a part of her life and very much sort of judges her. And, and so while it did get laughs in my theater, and I think that's something that Aronofsky, whether he might've been trying for a very sad moment. And, but I think it, it could be genuine. Someone could genuinely see that as funny or just kind of like, Oh my gosh, that's, you know, even if it is a laughter, a laugh of discomfort, he should have known that. And so I appreciate what he was trying to do, and I think he even achieves it if one were to watch it by oneself, as you did. But somehow in a group, you'll get people who certainly are... Frankly, you don't see a lot of, you don't see a lot of scenes in modern film of, well, masturbation in general, but specifically women masturbating. Any kind of female sensuality is usually not necessarily taboo, but you just don't see it. It's pretty rare. So there's the tension of that, and then possibly the release laughter there but one way or the or another if his intention was to create a sad moment where i can't where she can't even allow herself this little indulgence then he failed then i would say yes he i would say he failed i know what he was trying to do and when watching it by myself i could say he does achieve it but of course films are meant to be seen in in the theater with a group of people people, but and also there's no way on earth he didn't test screen this (laughs) <laughs> and there's no way on earth that they didn't laugh at that test screening. Yeah. And there's no way on earth that he went, well, I, I don't, I shouldn't have started that sentence that way, but, but I would think that if he saw that, he would, he would make a choice. Mm-hmm. He would say, I got a laugh moment in my very serious movie. People need to laugh. It's a mm-hmm. very serious movie. I'll leave it in. Or, uh, or he just left it in confused as to why they're laughing. Maybe they won't laugh. Maybe they Maybe just this audience laughed. You know, I mean, it's, it's just kind of kind of murky as to why it's still there. If knowing he, that there must have been a test screening and knowing for sure, I can't know this really, but that they laughed at that test screening as well. He just kept it in. If he, uh, knowing and, that he and there would, if he had won, if he had decided, like, let's say there was a test screening and and uh, the audience laughed and he saw that, oh, geez. But let's say he wanted it, in theory, let's say he wanted to keep the laugh because it is really the only laugh that the audience is allowed. So maybe he wanted one little moment of, of you know, comic relief there. Um, the, then he's doubly the way, failed. He's, he's the super- way to do it, quite frankly, and I'm sorry if, to go all the way with this, is let her finish. Okay. Because then, then at least our relief is hers. You know what I mean? It may be a different kind, mm-hmm. but it gets us more, and, you know... And she, but then of course that doesn't stay with the overall theme of what her character character is. She never is allowed to a release of tension or anything like that. Um, I don't think only uh, only uh, only teases. I don't know what what this uh, what this release of tension could have been. This laughter moment could have been in the mm-hmm. film. Um, but th- but that moment, seriously, think about it. A super private moment mm-hmm. discovers her mom's in the room, and we are compelled to laugh because of the embarrassment of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're laughing. We're not laughing at the situation at that moment. We're laugh. We're literally laughing at her. 
mm-hmm. because she got caught or she could have been caught. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just that's a disservice. It's like it's like an inconsistency. If we're supposed to be inside of her head, if we're supposed to be along for the ride for her sort of you know psycho trip, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> all the way down, um, then then why would he want a moment? where we are literally laughing at her, mm-hmm. at her pain, at her shame. It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, they could have done some, he could have done something similar where she's allowing herself to get into this, and then it suddenly cuts to, like, her mom is sitting there, like, looking at her, and then, like, she's jarred, and then she looks back, and her mom isn't there. Like, you could have even had that moment of I can't of she can't let herself get into this because even if her mom isn't there she feels like she always is like there's a way to sense. do it I, th- that I think the audience would still laugh but, but they would but, but it would have been thematically consistent. thematically it would have been the same because yeah. uh, because it, because the scene would have lasted longer than just that laugh moment mm-hmm. as it is now it's like she sees mom she turns over shamefully cut to next scene mm-hmm. that's all we have if it had been like you describe, or if it had been her mom literally standing there looking over her and then saying something berating her like she has yeah. been, um, well, then we've got we've got to con- exactly. I'm just re re saying what you said. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing is like it isn't it isn't a perfect film. There, you know what? Now that I think about it, there is another laugh in the film. Please tell me, which is much later, and it's it it's somewhat of an organic laugh, but it is it is definitely a moment of comic relief. And it's when she's like backstage, and the guy who's like dre- a guy who's like dressed as like a monster or a demon walks by. He's like, "How's it going?" Oh, I forgot about and that. And it's a ve- it's it's a very funny moment. Right. Um, it, but at least then it comes out of something. You know, it comes out of this. It's it's a weird uh, moment of reality in the midst of her delusions, which is everything is life or death. But in reality, she's still just part of a company, and all these people know each other and are ostensibly friends. Right. And so for a guy, he's in costume, but still, he's just like, how's it going? How you doing? That's, that's how it would be. <laughs> and so um, so that actually comes about some, somewhat organically and doesn't betray any of uh, anything thematically. Right. Um, it's just re- reality encroaching on her uh, insanity. But uh, But yeah, and so... So yeah, it's it isn't a perfect film, and I and that's and that is actually does, that does go back to something that I've said, which is I do think sometimes Aronofsky sort of judges his characters, or and I think a scene like that and just the the strange just the strange and very sudden tonal shift, um, which is purely a function of him. It's not at all a function of Natalie Portman. She's she's great in that scene, not merely, of course when she's going at it but afterwards when she turns and you see her face i mean it's really quite it's very sad very tragic yeah. but um but for him to sort of almost i don't know it, it seemed like he didn't really put the thought and consideration into the way that scene was cut the way that scene was shot uh that he has in the rest of the film um it seemed like it was just sort of a maybe slapped together and and I can come up with any number of reasons why he might have wanted to do that, but the best way to do it was to not make it so that there wouldn't be a laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it turns out, it, you can even keep it as it is. Have the mom be there sleeping, but have it be a moment of true horror and 
and sadness and realization that like I can't even do this. Something that really I should, you know, from a practical standpoint, I should be able to do this. Right. And I can't even do this because my mom is always there. I think the point of the scene, although I think it falls apart, is that even in her most private moments, she can't be alone. Right. Even in her most private moments, uh, she can't be herself. Mm -hmm. Even in her most private moments, her mom is still there. I mean, this is so obvious, but I think... That's the problem. I, the biggest problem I have with the movie is that everything is so obvious. Mm-hmm. All the symbolism is so obvious. There's cliches up and down because that we've seen mm-hmm. a million times, um, and and the the symbolism is just so overwrought. <laughs> is a good way. Well, to describe overwrought, the film. but obvious, just super mm-hmm. obvious. And it's interesting because the symbolism it is obvious, yes. Um, but I think. I I like the ending so much because you're not totally sure. That's that's where the ambiguity comes in. You're not to, or for me, I wasn't totally sure where the director. First off, what happened in general, what actually happened, as opposed to what happened in her mind, and also what the director thinks about it, and then what she thinks about it. It, it is a moment of triumph for her, but it also does she realize what she's actually done, and does she regret that? Is it worth it to her that what mm-hmm. has happened has happened? And uh, and that moment, you know, I've I've said on BP and I might have even said on this podcast that the way a film ends retroactively, it has a retroactive effect on how I view everything that came before it. Um, I think that's normal. Yeah. And so for me, like every little moment of of obviousness in the same way that a film with a bad ending that you've enjoyed up to that point is suddenly a bad film. Right. Like Unbreakable for me. Yeah, that's that is, and that's the thing. That's the ending is fine. Except I remember I took a class in school. You're talking about Unbreakable. Yeah. Okay. The ending is fine if it were if it were the ending of it like a different film. Right. Um, exactly. But as it is, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like whereas, uh, whereas with you know the Sixth Sense, you get uh, there's a slight tangent. Everybody, sorry. With the Sixth Sense, you get you know the audience is always asking like. What is going on with Bruce Willis and his wife? What is going on? And then we find out what's going on. Whereas in Unbreakable, I don't remember who said it, but someone said, I think I read an article that said, the film answers a question that no one was really asking. Like nobody was asking, what's the deal with Samuel L. Jackson? Is he a supervillain? No one asks that. No one thinks to ask that. Um, no, don't get me wrong. I actually like the fact that he is a supervillain. No, I like it as well. It's just that the last like thirty seconds of the movie, where it says, "And later they went on to whatever it was." I forget now. I can't stand looking at it. <laughs> it just ruined it. I remember walking out of the theater angry at that movie. I was literally angry at the movie. Maybe because I was enjoying it so much up to that point, and then it just like it sort of maybe it fed into this like like perverse fantasy I've always had about making the perfect film, mm-hmm. and then just. Will, willfully, will, willingly, put putting a, a just a terrible ending at the end, just to see what would happen. Every, all the characters start dancing to "Every Way, uh, Any Way You Want It" by Journey. Any way you want it, yeah. Be, yeah, but then I, you know, of course, Shyamalan beat me to it with Unbreakable. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "You did it!" Oh, I was going to do that myself. Um, all right, well, that was a fun little tangent. Um, so we haven't really. I mean, we've talked. We've talked a fair amount about the film in general. Um, There's so many more problems that we could talk about. Well, I don't know if I'd call them problems. And I don't want to focus just on problems, but no, uh, I agree. I totally agree with you because there are Themes. a lot of there are a lot of good things going on. I do really love 
a lot of the cinematography, like Beautiful. the dance the choreography and the cinematography and the editing, much like in The Wrestler, like he really puts you there. Like you are in The Wrestler, you are in the ring and you and in and in Black Swan, you're in the studio, you're on stage with the characters and and it's really it's really quite exciting. And moments like that, you know, I think Aronofsky's kind of a virtuoso uh, filmmaker and and I think he probably ex- I think he excels at that perhaps he perhaps more than smaller scenes you know he's a, he's a film he's a very grand filmmaker and if something is not grand he will often elevate it to that level e- and make things that are maybe a bit uh, as you say a bit obvious I have to throw this in okay. I don't know where I would put it okay. so I'm going to put it right here all right uh, my 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 sort of half sentence for what I thought this movie was. If David Cronenberg's biggest fan made an after-school special, it would be Black, Black Swan. That's not bad. Thank you. What about Polanski? You got when any he, Polanski in there? Oh, well, of course there's Polanski in okay. there. Okay. I, th- I think I'm more... I, I, I just sort of went through a... Like watching several of Cronenberg's early films. Oh, all right. Um, boy, I mean, it's it's like watching Black Swan with a much better brain behind it. Like everything, everything moving, er, the 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 forward motion of themes, uh, visuals, characters, everything in those movies, you know that that's exactly what the director wanted, and it just mm-hmm. it feels so right watching those movies. And it's interesting because uh, I I love Cronenberg. I like him, you know, infinitely more than I uh, do Aronofsky. But uh, but he he's actually also a filmmaker who he's even in even in stuff like. Uh, you know, naked lunch, which is just ridiculous anyway. Right. Um, he is a guy who he's sort of, I don't know, you can't, he's unstoppable in that he's just, he's unrelenting is, is I think a way that I've, I've described him in the past. Um, his stories are often surprisingly simple mm-hmm. and one, one could say obvious, um, and it's in in many ways. Uh, I would say that uh, that Black Swan is very Cronenbergian, in that it's a fairly simple story, with all kinds of horrific imagery, right. um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's a very apt comparison. Well, but I think it, the, the major t- sorry to interrupt, but the major t- touchstone is Cronenberg's The Fly. Oh yeah, which is you know you got the fingernails falling off, you got the the hair growing out of the back, mm-hmm. you know, it just seemed visually it seemed like a like a I don't want to say a rip off because there's right. tons of homages or um yeah anyway it just kind of reminded me of that so that's mm-hmm. thus the Cronenberg yeah. uh comparison and there's a lot of overwrought stuff I, I love the fly of course the one of my great. favorite movies of all time but uh but there's a lot of overwrought stuff there as well like Jeff Goldblum is given a lot of just crazy dialogue now of course because he's Jeff Goldblum he can sell it and it all sounds surprisingly organic yes um but uh but yeah, it's I, I almost wonder if just like if you had if you had dialogue and, and performances that were just small and you know, if you had like Mike Lee type performances in Mike in Lee's a, The Fly. Oh my gosh, how I'd I'd see that. I oh I'd see don't, I'd, of course I'd see it. <laughs> um and I'd probably love it. But it's it's almost like when you have when you have crazy things that happen like in The Fly or in Black Swan, if you almost feel like the film needs to be a little bit melodramatic in order to keep up. Otherwise, our 
I don't know. Our uh, suspension of dis- disbelief will be strained to the. P- it'll just you know break completely. Like it just won't happen anymore because it's right. like, oh well, I was on board with these regular people, but now all this crazy stuff's happening, and that's. I now I don't believe anything that's happening. Whereas when everyone seems to exist in a heightened version of our reality, it may it may not make sense that these things are happening. But it's like, yeah, I could see that. Absolutely. In that world, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have we even talked about the themes that we wanted to talk about? Yeah, uh, we've touched on them, but I haven't actually identified them as the themes. So let's okay. let's go ahead and do that now because we've been talking for about an hour. What? And I feel like we've been having a good conversation. You know, absolutely. You've been uh, trashing you. the film and anybody who loves it. No, I consider and, myself uh, the white swan in this conversation. Oh, <laughs> what a jerk! Or maybe because I hate it, I'm the black swan. There you go. There that you makes, go. That makes much yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm the I'm I'm a good person. I give you that. So, um, all right. So here's a. Uh, and and I think actually you were the one to mention it uh, before is the big theme for Black Swan and and I, Jason I did touch on it uh, for a rather extended period of time last episode, is the idea of <laughs> committing to your art, which is a good thing. You want to commit to your sure. art, but committing to it at the expense of all else, possibly even yourself, uh, your relationships, and really anything else. And and you will. Depending on who you talk to, you will run across people who literally believe that that's that's what it is. That's what you need to do. When you're a true artist, as we'll talk about in the companion film, you know, you just you can't be tied down with all these obligations. The obligations could be family, friends, family, friends or faith, the three F's. Um, And so. I don't know that. With with almost I I mean you could with almost any uh, profession or any uh, calling to bring it back to a uh, some Christian terminology with almost any calling there is a I don't know there is a temptation to take that totally seriously and commit to it far beyond anything that might have actually been required of you and but some but I do think uh, this might be. Because, of course, you know, there's doctors and people who actually, like, do things for a living. Um, <laughs> but with, with, with art, I think because it is so intangible and the level of quality is not set in stone at all times. Like, with, with a lot of other professions or callings, you, you know when you're, when you're done. You know when you've finished this, when you've fixed the problem or whatever the case may be. Whereas with art, you never, they, you know, they say that pro- great art is never finished. It's just abandoned. and Or you hit the deadline. Or, yeah, well, that's the other thing, um, speaking from a purely practical standpoint. Right. Um, and so I do think that there's a temptation, whether you're a Christian or otherwise, to just go so far in just becoming, just buying into this idea of an artist as having no time for anything else. And that is one I think there are several themes that are explored in Black Swan, but I think and I think that's one of them and that's the one I want to I want to sort of touch okay. on because this is a uh a girl who just lives for success and perfection. And of course for her the two are pretty interchangeable. The only way to know that you're perfect is to get this role and to 
you know, be the lead in this production and, and that sort of thing. So it's interesting because when I think of the movie, I don't think of her as a person who's driven by this need to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Although in dialogue, she states, I want to be perfect in that little girly voice that mm-hmm. Aronofsky makes her use. Um, but I, I believe when I think of the movie, I think of it as a movie about uh, a very uh, criminally deprived girl, mm-hmm. young woman who is in a desperate search for validation. Mm-hmm. And because of her mom's past, yeah. here comes ballet. <laughs> and it almost could have been, I mean, ballet, it could have been anything else. It could have been, she could have worked at Target, you know, and uh, didn't want to wear the uniform at Target. I don't know. This is, I mean, this is what the movie could have been. And it would have been her obsessive desire to... How much better would have the movie have been if it had been about Target employees? I, it might be, a, it might have been my favorite movie, <laughs> honestly. Um, but it's a, it's about her, her desperate need for validation mm-hmm. and the way she feels like she can be validated given the people who are in her life is to be perfect mm-hmm. at ballet mm-hmm. and so perfection is our goal but perfection is sort of a sub goal to um to to being accepted mm-hmm. and to being validated and I, I think this is so it's it's a it's a hard thing to talk about because in, in the in the context of 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 God and mm-hmm. uh, being a Christian, being a follower of God and Christ, is how do you really know that what you say you're called to do is what you're really called to do? It's such a mm-hmm. buzzword, I think, from even a lot of Christians, much less everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, to be called by God to be an artist. I mean, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. And specifically to be a filmmaker, a writer, cinematographer, a film critic. You know, any of those things are are valid ends, but to call them God's calling on your life puts everyone else sort of in this place of going, well, I guess I can't argue with that. It's like the biggest argument he can make for what he's doing. Right. So that, I, I, I think I lost my own train, but but it's it just seems like it's really hard to, to know. Um, I've completely lost my train. Go. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and... For me, I th- and we, you know, touched on this a little bit in the Ratatouille episode, is, you know, there are certain signifiers that you can look for in your own life, you know, what you're good at, what you like to do, sure. and that sort of thing. Um, and, of course, what opportunity allows you to do. Um, but I do think that there is a tendency uh, in the church to, when you... F- when you feel uh, rather, even if it's, even if you feel at fifty one percent instead of the full hundred, once you have a general idea of what it is you're being called to do, there is a tendency to want to, you know, to to echo, uh, you know, the character of Nina, to want to be perfect at it and absolutely do it, and of course, you will be validated in the church because people will be like, "Wow, look at it! Look how look at him go! This is great." And, of course, if you're validated in the church, then you must be validated by God, right? It all works out. And so before you know it, like, you are you do this one thing, which is a good thing. It's, it's the thing that you're called to do. But before you know it, the calling becomes the goal. Not to serve God, not to commune with God, mm-hmm. not to help others or, you know, or communicate with others, whatever the case may be. Only doing this and succeeding at it, and incidentally, of course, once once that becomes the goal, then 
the definition of success becomes very narrow. It becomes very small. And chances are we define it ourselves as opposed to some external definition. And so, so that's when like we push ourselves and we literally become defined more by what God has called us to do than by God himself. And that's when you wind up, I feel like that's, that's why I wanted to bring up Black Swan for this episode, because you find a character who is so wrapped up in what she wants to do in her case, as you mentioned in her case for val to be validated by her mom or by whoever, uh, that she certainly, first off, she takes absolutely no joy in it. Like there is a moment in the film that I think honestly, part of me feels like this, that's the moment that got Natalie Portman, her Oscar, which is when I think that's actually the clip they played, uh, for the when they were showing the nominees is when she's told that she is going to get the lead in the next and she talks to her mom and she talks to her mom on the right. phone and she's crying but it's not and of course you know anytime you get good news like i understand one one might cry but it's not that kind of crying it's this very strange it's a really complex moment uh, emotionally mm-hmm. because she's happy but she doesn't seem happy more just i don't know it seems like she's crushed but you also know that she's happy it's well, a very you, strange you, performance you, you sense her fear yeah. that she's not gonna be able to live up to the opportunity she's been given yeah. it's it's almost like uh that old adage you know be careful what you wish for because you just might get it she got it yeah now and she's now, terrified and now she's terrified and she goes insane so um <laughs> but she turns into a black swan yeah, so uh, so it works out. M- mission accomplished. All right, guys, thanks for listening. So, uh, so yeah, and and so we we become defined by this thing, and before you know it, we are miles away from from God, and I don't know. I I think that that's something that everybody deals with, but because there is something inherently a little. Uh, I don't know, self-important about art. Mm -hmm. I feel like we can fall into it pretty easily, which is I'm making art for God. Right. What, what do you do? You know, and that sort of thing. And so target. Yeah, I guess that's pretty exciting. Whatever. I'm challenging people. I made a film called Fireproof. Okay, I went too far <laughs> in that direction. I'm sorry. Because um, uh. that guy's priorities might be completely straight. They're probably not. Uh, because, of course, uh, if they were, he probably would have made a better film. So, uh, Harsh. Whatever. Hey, we've all got our calling. Mine is to call out uh, bad art. Um, and what a small calling it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, and so... Uh, so I wanted to use this opportunity to bring up uh, the companion film. Well, actually, uh, I've been talking for a while before we bring up the companion film. Was there anything that you wanted to say, whether it be, uh, ex- you know, examples from your own life? I'm not opposed to that. Or just uh, thoughts in general about this sort of thing. Well, once again, this seems to be the uh, MO, my MO for the whole episode is I have no idea what I'm about to say. Oh, here we go. All I know is that when I think about my own life and I think about the word calling, mm-hmm. um, I seem to recall over the course of my life not like sort of avoiding using that word mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. One is because it sounds pretentious, yeah. and the other is I'm afraid of calling it that because then you really do have to live up to what everyone expects you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you kind of couched it in the phrase in terms like 
the things that that um, that you enjoy doing when you're younger, mm-hmm. um, the things that people kind of validated you for and complimented you on as you were growing up, this sort of becomes what you want to do mm-hmm. because it's just been reinforced in so many ways over the course of your life. Um, for me, it, it, it sort of changed a, a lot. I mean, it was drawing when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this. Um, and then it became writing. And then it, I wanted it to become directing, and I've done some of that over the course of the years. But that's just a very difficult thing to, to maintain. It's easy to maintain writing. Um, and so now I feel like my calling is writing. Is mm-hmm. it really my calling, or is it just something I really like to do? Mm-hmm. I, I really do struggle with literally just the semantics of the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what I like to do, but I, th- I think that I know just a little bit of confessional at the moment. Um, for like the last couple of years, I feel like I've hit a real dry spell in terms of writing and my 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 passion for writing, my uh, confidence. In writing, I, I feel like I have some good ideas, but I just can't seem to follow through on them. And uh, part of me is like, I'm glad I never call that a calling because then I'd be letting down God. Yeah. Currently, I'm only letting down myself, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably not true, but it's a way I sort of like salve mm-hmm. this this sort of feeling of dryness and feeling of like, I don't really know what I'm doing anymore. Like, where is this going? Or should I even start anything anymore because I don't know if it's going to go anywhere? All of those things, all those self-doubt that all writers and all artists broaden no. it. Um, that all artists tend to have, you know, I, I feel like I've been there. And so, so in terms of c- calling it a calling, I don't, I don't really know, or cer- certainly, you know, we're talking about being obsessed mm-hmm. to the point of giving up things around you in order to pursue that thing. I've never felt that way uh, about anything, really? you know, in terms of my art, like in terms of writing or something like that, like nothing like, you know, family and friends have always, you know, have never, you know, been sacrificed in order that I can finish a script, you know, maybe time with right. them, but certainly not their friendship. And so watching movies like like Black Swan or or Pollock or any of these other movies are the the, the jazz the jazz singer. Mm-hmm. Um all these movies the one are with Neil Diamond, of course, right? Uh is is that, is that the one I'm thinking of? No, the jazz. All that jazz. My oh bad. okay. My bad. The other jazz movie. Um with a By the way, everyone, uh, I do know that there's <laughs> an older one with Al Jolson. I just I like the idea of latching on to the mediocre film starring, yes, Neil, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond, yes. And Laurence Olivier, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh, I don't know. Oh, boy. Now i got to go rent it. So, you know, I've, I've just, I don't know that I've ever had, uh, you know, that clarity of vision hmm. or that that level of of uh, you know, desperate need to get this done, in order that other things so, sort of fall by the wayside. I just don't know that I've ever had that. I don't know that I know anybody who is like that. Are you like that? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. Um, I think I think anyone who's an artist who claims to be an artist is that to a certain ex- extent. I'm not saying that I'm just sort of lazily like hanging around. You've got to work down. It sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I, I but when you look at these movies, for me watching these movies. It's uh, it's kind of twofold. I actually wrote a little paragraph. Do you mind if I just read oh, it? Oh, go right I ahead. Can, I can read a lot better than I can think. You have very small handwriting. Uh, yeah, look at that. That's ridiculous. I know. It's barely there. Obsession. This is sort of my uh, my grand statement. Okay. <laughs> Obsession is photogenic. This is sort of as watching all these movies, you know, kind of leading up to this day. Um, it just kind of dawned on me. Obsession is, is photogenic. Observing another person becoming absorbed and engulfed by passion, we are flattered 
by the reminder of our own capacity for art, while coddled by the reminder that our moderation in our own lives will at last save us from the devastation from within. You know, so it's kind of fun to watch uh, uh, Guy from Jaws. Uh, Quint? No, no, no. Uh, Oh, Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. I thought you were talking about Quint's obsession with killing sharks. Sorry, go on. See, that could be an art. Yeah. Um, He makes it an art. You know, his his, uh, level of obsession, you know, is fun to watch because... Because it's like it is. It's grandiose. It's bigger than life. It's, it's a. Uh, it's all that jazz. It's you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's like huge, um, and it's fun to watch that because it is bigger than life. Mm-hmm. You can you sort of like a, a, um, there's a, a sort of a cathartic attachment you have to watching that. It's like oh, we can all do that. We should all do that. Mm-hmm. Except now, we we can see his demise because of it and pull back and go. You know, I'm glad that's not me. Right. I'm glad I just like you know do it on the weekends or whatever. Um, so it's sort of a weird twofold enjoyment that I think people generally get from these kind of movies. Yeah, and you can definitely, I mean, you mentioned it uh, in your paragraph there, that it's, uh, you definitely get a sense of, a certain sense of self-satisfaction. That like, well, I'm glad I'm not him. <laughs> right. I mean, I might be, I might be yeah. a little preoccupied with this stuff, but boy, oh boy, at yeah. least I'm not that guy. Right. And, uh, but I do, th- but then the crazy thing is, then you define yourself by moderation. You know what I mean, and mm. and so I, I'll I'll go ahead and before we get into the uh, companion film, I'll bring up something that uh, a quote by uh, Tim Keller that I really like. He says, "Sin isn't only doing bad things; it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, uh, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry." And so hmm. that idea is something that, uh, and I, I was so happy I found the, the quote because like after watching uh, Black Swan and then today I rewatched uh, the companion film, um, I was like, I got to find that quote because I know that's what it is. And, uh, and I do think that, that with, with artists, like we, we buy into ourselves so much because we're the, we're a communicate, especially Christian artists. We're communicating. We're communicating God's truth. Oh, boy. So, come on now. I, so, I can't be bothered to do these other things, you know. Um, even if, and I, hey, like, I'm, I'm married and I enjoy spending time with my friends. So, it's not like that's what I sacrifice. But what I, what does sometimes happen is if I spend maybe a little too much time with friends and maybe I neglected writing this thing for one night, then it's like, easy there. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Not doing the Lord's work. You're not doing the Lord's work. Yeah, sure. You may have been able to uh, have a really great connection with this friend that, that evening. But you're not doing the Lord's work. And that's so very important. It's as if building a relationship with the people around you isn't the Lord's it's work. It's just a waste of time, yeah. really. Yeah. It just distracts you from your true calling. And I think that's that's something that, that I agree with you on is that the word gets thrown around. I think far too... I, I don't... I don't remove the word from my uh, lexicon, but I do think it gets thrown around far too casually. Because and and what's more is I think it gets associated with profession way too easily. Mm. Your job may be the thing that you do to fund your calling. You know what I mean? And your calling might you might be called to be 
to submit to God, which incidentally we all are. Um, you might be called to be a good husband or a good friend or whatever, you know, anything. That could be your calling. And your job is just how you make that happen so that you're not out on the street while you're doing that. Right. And so, so to... But and and this is why this is why I'm focusing so much on Christian artists because it seems so grand and so important that this this has to be my calling. And so why would I you know so yes I I'll be a good I'll be a good husband that's very important but more important is that I get the word out in my own special way. Um, and uh, I do have a quick Bible verse. Oh, about yeah? that. You ready? <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Wide open. Okay, here we go. Uh, John thirteen sixteen. Truly, truly. It says it twice. Verily, so you, verily. So you got to keep in mind. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Ooh. So, and I, I specifically think that that applies uh, quite a bit to art. And let's see. And then I'll, I'll follow that up with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Every poet and musician and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to the love of telling it till deep in, uh, down in deep hell, they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. Holy cow. Yeah. No one says things better than C.S. Lewis. Yeah. My goodness. You know, it's weird that someone uh, so eloquent can also be so incredibly blunt. Um, yeah. And uh, and I feel like that's that's something that we definitely need to keep in mind is we com- we we don't always do this, but we can commit so much to what God has called us, what we feel God has called us to do that we completely lose sight of him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we turn, as Keller said, we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. And then as C.S. Lewis says, we completely lose sight of God, even though he's what we wanted to talk about in the first place. Right. And then, we lose sight of the fact that uh, the messenger is not greater than the one who sent them. True. Um, but, uh, but I do want to talk about the companion film because it's wonderful and mm-hmm. I don't want to just spend a mere five minutes on it. Okay. Uh, because it's a film that uh, we talked about uh, in a fair amount of detail when you were last here. Did we? I don't, I don't recall us really going into it in uh, too much detail. Maybe, maybe only for a few minutes because it was one that uh, we both really like it. Might, it. The film is Sweet and Low Down, written and directed by Woody Allen, and it is one of my. Fa- it might be my second or third favorite of his films, after, after Manhattan. No, I do not What's care for Manhattan. Uh, after Hannah and Her Sisters and oh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. There you go. So, um, and yeah, after watching it uh, again today, uh, the story is is well. You know what? I've been talking for a while, and you're the Woody Allen guy. Why don't you talk about wow. Sweet and Low Down? No pressure. Uh, so you got a series of talking heads uh, mm-hmm. who are uh, jazz historians, mm-hmm. uh, and they are reminiscing, a la a documentary, um, on the the life and times of a fictional uh, mid thirties jazz guitarist named Emmett Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we cut cut away from these talking heads to uh, w- what I guess in a documentary would be called. Uh, reenactments, but it doesn't play like reenactments. We're actually going back in time to see the life and times of Emmett Ray, played mm-hmm. by Sean Penn, played wonderfully by Sean Penn. If you if you have any doubt about his ability to play comedy um, as well as as drama, 
I think um, I like him more comedically than dramatically, actually. He, we've talked a lot about pretension <laughs> yeah. in this episode. I think, I think he brings a lot of uh, innate pretension to virtually anything he does dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a level of, of uh, studied comedy in his performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. So you know that he went out and he was practicing this stuff and, you know, and whatnot. But it's, and so, I mean, it comes across as, as very, uh, I don't know, to me, because, maybe just because we haven't seen him in too many comedic roles, it's like, I, wow, he really learned how to do comedy well or something. And he, at any rate, he does it very, very well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's very funny in the movie. Samantha Morton plays his... Hattie. Hattie, his love interest. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, he is her love interest, but mm-hmm. he kind of comes around, and then it's a bit late yeah. once he does that. Um, and she's mute. And she is the perfect mate for him uh, <laughs> at first because he loves nothing more than talking about himself mm-hmm. and uh, talking about how great a jazz guitarist he is, except for this is his, his, his only humbling thing in the entire film is that he's aware of the fact that there is one person who is better than him as a jazz guitarist, and it is the the the, the gypsy who lives in France, or how, <laughs> I forget how he keeps phrasing it. Yeah. Um, the gypsy guitarist in France, yeah. uh, Django Reinhardt, who is, mm-hmm. of course, not fictional. Um, and so he goes through the whole movie sort of bloviating about himself and how great he is, mm-hmm. but has to tag it almost every time by, except for this gypsy guitar player in, <laughs> in France. And it, it really is a wonderful movie um, about... Well, I would I wouldn't say it's about obsession though. I don't think it's about obsession in the same way mm-hmm. that that uh, that uh, Black Swan is in any right. way. Because the, the, a major difference between the two movies, I would say, is that um, Nina is constantly in search of. She's on on the path toward perfection and validation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Emmett Ray has all the validation he needs. All he has to do is hear himself talk about himself. Right. He has to hear the, the you know, the critics talk about him mm-hmm. and say how great he is. He knows he's great. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need anyone to tell him. He just knows that he's got to be better than one, this one guy. He, yeah. At some point, you know, it, but Django, he makes me cry, you know, and stuff like that. He just says things like this that really make him human mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, but I, I meant to say that she is his perfect foil because because she is completely mute <laughs> and he can basically a, a walking sounding board yeah over the course of the film he learns to realize that this is the person who was meant for him but she has moved on by the time he realizes this is a very tragic tale mm-hmm. and uh by the end of the movie you re- you really you really feel for for Emmett Ray yeah um I don't know how much of the the ending I should talk about but well it's uh I mean we'll go back a little bit because one of the things that he talks about quite a bit, yes, of course, in reference to himself, is also what it is to be an artist, and or rather how he interprets it. And for him, people, you know, in, in lines that are actually surprisingly obvious for Woody Allen, um, but of course Sean Penn plays them beautifully. That's the thing about playing, I'll go ahead and say a ridiculous character, just a guy who's just... Just very a, much a cartoon. Just, yeah, just a caricature of a human being. Yeah. Um, is that you can say things that are a little that are a little on the nose, and nobody quite realizes it immediately. It realizes immediately that it is on the nose. Um, but people say, like the various women in his life before he meets Hattie, and then even a little bit afterwards, uh, they say, you know, why don't you just show what you feel? 
and he do, and he expresses emotion and he talks all the time. And so someone someone say, well, he is expressing himself. No, 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 no. He's not showing what he actually feels or what he actually thinks. He is only he's he's sort of playing a role, and that's the role of the artist. And I don't know, and and just the way he lives, the way he thinks maybe an artist should live. You know, well, I have to have these types of clothes. I have to. Goes without saying. I have to have this kind of car. You know, and just and I think he likes the idea of seeing himself as maybe even something of a tortured artist. Like he has no problems talking about sort of a bad childhood because I think that adds to a mystique. So he'll talk about it, but we won't, he won't let anyone know how he feels about that. Those things just happened. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but I think he understands the effect it might have on somebody else when he says it, which is, yeah, you know, my uh, parents died and I was, uh, for a while, I lived in a whorehouse and all these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, and just uh, now I just play guitar. I, I express myself through my guitar. You know? so it's, uh, I think the, the scene you're thinking of is really a beautiful scene. It's when they're laying in bed mm-hmm. side by side. And the camera's just kind of pushing in from kind of a wide shot to a two shot of them mm-hmm. laying in bed, and uh, and he's saying he's telling her about his childhood, and what's beautiful about the scene is how she's absorbing in her face. I mean, she's wonderful in this movie. You just yeah. know everything she's thinking, and uh, she's absorbing the news for the first time about his childhood. He's probably said it a billion times. Yeah, but there's something very very uh, touching about the way he says it too. He's saying it. Almost like you know that he knows he's saying it to someone who's actually listening for the first time. Right. And there's a, there's this thing he does throughout the film, Sean Penn, uh, when he's talking to her. And it's he'll say something like, uh, whatever, I lived in a whorehouse. Mm-hmm. I lived in a whorehouse, and he'll kind of look at her, and there's this pause, almost like he's waiting on her to, to say something. Right. And he realizes she's not going to say something, and so he just keeps going. Mm-hmm. And it's it's there's this touching quality to his need to hear something back and a touching quality to how she actually is giving him something back by the way she's looking at him. It's really well done. And there's a, there's also a wonderful scene in which, uh, I mean, he buys her all kinds of presents, Yes, you know, in a Charles Foster Canyon kind of way, he gives her presents, but they don't actually mean anything. Uh, and so, but then there's a, a scene where she gives him something for his birthday. She, she buys him a pair of gloves that he wanted. Right. Really not a huge gift. And it's just one as opposed to the dozens that he's given her. But he's first off, he's touched that she remembered his birthday. And then when he sees the gloves, like he is visibly not shaken, but it's like he feels this stirring like and it goes back to what you're talking about. Plenty of people like hear him and he talks all the time. But this is someone who's actively listening and processing what he says. So when he s- happens to mention, I want these gloves. She's heard it. She actually hears it and and puts it into practice. Yeah. And, of course, it's right after that that she gives him a card in which she declares love. And because he has Don't so, get any funny ideas or yeah. whatever he says. And just... And that's the thing is I feel like he has so absorbed this idea of what the artist is, which is, hey, don't get, don't get attached. Allow your emotions to come out through your art. That when she finally says love, it's not long after that he immediately uh, dismisses flies her. the coop. Yeah, and so and and he winds up getting married to somebody that he obviously doesn't love. 
um, but has been sleeping with from time to time, and he doesn't share any of himself with her either. And because throughout the whole thing, he just talks about, he just keeps repeating that thing over and over, is almost as if he's trying to convince himself that when you're a true artist, you don't need the, need these other things. All you need is your art. Mm-hmm. And of course, by the end, when he when he does return to to Hattie, only to find that she's happily married and with a child, so certainly nothing she can get out of easily. <laughs> um, he uh, he has a moment where he is incredibly drunk and goes out with like this chorus girl afterwards, and isn't listening to anything she has to say, and she's not listening to him either. And uh, he finally like. He finally declares, I made a mistake. He doesn't say what it was. We all know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he yells it and smashes his guitar against a tree and then proceeds to really, like, cry and let out a re- very guttural sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, it's very, very sad and very tragic. Um, but what's interesting is that after, that's pretty much the last scene in the film and then we get the Talking Heads, uh, not the David Byrne <laughs> band, but the various uh, jazz aficionados, talking about the recordings that he did shortly after this little event. And now, of course, they don't know what it is that happened in Emmett Ray's life. We do. And But they say those, those recordings are the most beautiful he has ever done. And in those recordings, he is every bit the match of Django Reinhardt. Right. And he gets his validation. He gets his validation, but it's only when he, for a moment, recognizes that maybe he was, he ma- certainly made a mistake, but maybe his whole philosophy was wrong. Maybe being the greatest and just being defined by as this great artist, second only to this uh, gypsy in France, uh, maybe this isn't all there was to it. And you know, to go back to what we were talking about with a calling, you know, for him, hey, he was great the moment he picked up a guitar. So in a way, one could say that that was his calling. And so he devoted everything to it, and he wound up sacrificing a relationship with this woman because he was so devoted to this calling and all the things that he thought went with it, including independence. And uh, only at the end, when he realizes that there are other elements to life, only then does it put his music in proper perspective, and he makes the best music of his life. Right. Which is something that fascinates me. That's a, that's a moment that I always liked at the end of the film, is that it's not merely that he recognizes his mistake. It's that everything is thrown into sharp relief, and because he sort of lets his emotions out and understands what life is, is about, as opposed to just his tunnel vision view... Um, it actually affects the thing like you would it would be interesting if if they said like yeah he just gave up guitar after that it's not that though it's right. that he kept going and it was better yeah and it's and i wish that i had this uh quote written down uh but I, but i do i believe it's cs lewis who says you know when we shoot for for uh if we shoot for the world instead of heaven we get neither but if we shoot for, I'm paraphrasing because I don't think C.S. Lewis says stuff like shoot for, <laughs> but uh, I think he probably says aim for. That's that's a little more him. Little but more when British. we, but we, so when we aim for the world, instead of heaven, we'll get neither. But if we if we aim for heaven, we will get that and the world thrown in, hmm. you know. And that's something that that fascinates me is 
speaking at the moment from an artistic perspective, you know, if all you want to do is make this great art and that's all you care about at the exclusion of all else, including a relationship with God, then I feel like your art is, is going to suffer because you will have lost any kind of perspective. And, but when you focus on God and you see that your, your art flows out of him, then I feel like your art can't help but be great because then you want to be a good artist, not for your own sake or even for art's sake, but for God's sake, you know? And uh, I don't know. That's kind of all I have to say there. Sorry, I've been talking for a while. No, that's all very... I would have to say amen to that. <laughs> it's all good. One thing that, that crossed my mind, though, while you're talking about that, certainly not um, you know, a huge thing compared to what you just said, <laughs> when we were talking about calling and what that means exactly, he said, well, Emmett Ray knew how to play guitar from the moment he picked it up. He was like a mm-hmm. genius. Yeah. Um, kind of like Amadeus. I think think of Amadeus when I think of this movie because it's just like it's like this gift just landed from heaven on Emmett Ray or Amadeus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you call that a calling because it's a good thing. Is it also a calling if it's a bad thing? Case in point, I, f- I just love this moment when I saw it um, and noticed it for the first time watching uh, Sweet and Low Down. Uma Thurman, you know, gets distracted from her relationship with Emmett Ray by the, the yeah. thug, you know, yeah. that's, you know, like Al the, Torrio, played by Anthony LaPaglia. Well said. Well done. I didn't know that. I wrote um, it down. It's right there. Oh, <laughs> no, don't, don't pull the curtain back. Oh, sorry. Um, and he's sort of wooing her by talking about how good he is with a gun. And he says, yeah, I, I just, uh, I picked it up one day when I was 15 and, you know, I've been good with it since. Mm-hmm. He says the same exact thing about picking up a gun and being sort of a, a bad guy mm-hmm. as Emma Ray says about his guitar or as I say about writing or as you say about whatever you know yeah anybody anybody who's in the arts you know mm-hmm. says yeah I just I just loved it when I first picked it up and so I'm not, I'm not trying to make any big statement or anything here I just found it interesting that well that, yeah I mean God that it could be a bad thing as well as a good thing that you are good at yeah you could I call mean, your calling like an evil you know evil villain very much so like only only through a relationship with God do we gain the proper perspective on what our calling is? You know, Usually, I could be use it for good, not evil, that kind yeah, of thing. I could be great at uh, uh, killing alley cats. I don't know. That's the first thing I thought of. I could be great at that. That doesn't necessarily mean that's my calling. In fact, quite the opposite. Like instincts are not necessarily what we should always follow. Um, so yeah, that's actually a very good point. And I, and I didn't even think about, uh, about that because he does say like, you know, it always just came kind of naturally to me. Like, yeah. Right. So, Does that mean you should do it? Right. You know, you murder people. Uh, another, I think another point that we could discuss sort of as a wrap-up is um, if that's what you would like to do. Yes. yes. Um, now, clearly, the ballet in Black Swan and Emmett Ray's gift in, uh, in uh, Sweet and Low Down mirror the talents of the filmmakers who made those movies. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like they could be talking about themselves through the... Or Aronofsky's talking about himself through right. Black Swan. Um, and at no point is that as evident to me um, that they're aware of that as the ending of both movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end of... Recall the end of... Of, uh, of the Bird movie... Black Swan. I couldn't think of the name Black Swan. Yeah, it's right it here. Be, it's written down it several must be times after 9 in front of us. Yikes. Indeed, it is. Um, you know, he says, uh, Nina says, it it was perfect or I was perfect or whatever. Mm-hmm. Fade to white. Um, applause go up. 
uh, cheering goes up. While the cheering is still there, you see the name directed by Darren Aronofsky come up. So we're we're kind of cheering for the audience is cheering for him as well, mm-hmm. you know, by what we're seeing. In in a similar instance, much smaller scale. I mean, obviously the movie is much smaller at the end. I wrote this down. The end of Sweet and Lowdown. The the last talking head we see is Woody Allen talking about Emmett Ray, and he says, uh, uh, "We do fortunately have those last few recordings, and they're great. They're absolutely beautiful." Mm-hmm. And it hangs on Woody Allen's face for a good three seconds before it cuts to black. Yeah. And all you can think is Woody Allen made this movie. Woody Allen is saying this. And the last few were beautiful. Yeah. You, know, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe he's unaware of the fact that that just seems really self-aggrandizing, if that's yeah. how you say that word. Um, <laughs> but it is. I mean, it's inter- it could be interpreted that way. He's really talking about himself and his latest few movies or his the movies that are coming up or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it's such an – both movies end so arrogantly. <laughs> it just They do. And it just kind of makes me step back and go, that's icky. You know, at, at a certain level, filmmaking is icky. It's not about <laughs> it's not about this calling. It's about it's about putting yourself forward. It's about fame. We talk about calling. Mm-hmm. So many people. This is, I'm just kind of sh- you know shotgunning it now, but uh, so many so many people in 20th 21st century America, especially, um, equate making it uh, in your calling with fame. Mm-hmm. If you're in the arts, oh yeah, you you make that movie that finally gets noticed, or you write that song, um, whatever it is. And uh, it's it's so much equated with fame that it completely uh, undercuts the humility that one should approach all of it with to begin with. Yeah. Ooh, I just I mean I I, I can only say that because I I deal with that myself. I think anyone in this city, Los Angeles, deals with that who is a Christian and who is trying to pursue what they feel like is their calling mm-hmm. in the city, also has to question themselves and and constantly reevaluate. Um why they're doing it, why they're in yeah. this city to do it, as opposed to staying in their hometown, as opposed to moving to a smaller town than your hometown to do it. Yeah. Um, why is it more of a fulfillment of what you do well to do it on a huge scale? Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting with... <laughs> I'm I'm going to paraphrase Spider-Man, who, when he said, uh, with great power comes great responsibility, and... You know, frankly, if you are in the arts and you and let's say you're a Christian in the arts and you do feel that it is your calling and you really want to try and do it to the best of your ability for God's glory, which I think everything I said is the way it should be. Let's say that's it. Well, the earthly rewards could be money and fame. Everyone could know you. And of course, those are big rewards. And one could say that the bigger the earthly reward, the m- the more temptation there's going to be right. for that to be the the ultimate reward. Right. And uh, and of course that's something to, oh my gosh, it's now I try to because I I'll get emails from time to time people saying like really great things about the show and it's incredibly nice of them, and for me I'm like oh I better not let this go to my head. So my my solution is to go so far in the other direction that I completely I wind up devaluing. God's calling. I wind up saying, saying like, oh, that's nice of them, but really, who cares? This this really isn't that important at all. It's like, right. well, it is. That's not humility. That's it's kind of spitting in God's face, right? You know. So it's it really is. I mean, you know, we talked like uh, in the Prestige episode talked about a bit a bit of a tightrope you need to walk, and uh, with this as well, you know, finding because you're you're. you're there's such uh, potential to fall 
and make it all about yourself and all about your pursuits and really buy into what you are trying to do. Um, but yeah, if you, you know, if you stay, if you try to stay in the word and try to realize as the verse says, the messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. And then of course, uh, Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20, verse three, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, it's pretty, uh, cut and dry. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. And of course, art can be a God. Uh, mm-hmm. You can be a God. I mean, it's really, it's very, it's very easy. So it's, you gotta, it's difficult, but most things are. Tyler, I think if this is indeed the last in the series on obsession with art, or mm-hmm. whatever the title was, that this is the this is the moment for your final statement. I think I just made it. It was really good. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> well, now I don't remember what I said. Well, can I say this? Um, okay. I, this 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 is for everyone to hear. I've known you for a little while, a few mm-hmm. years. Um, I've seen the podcast grow, both of them. Well, this one hasn't grown very much, but I understand well, what you're saying. You're devaluing <laughs> it again. No, that one's actually true. <laughs> oh, that's actually, it has continued. There you go. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, as it's continued, um, I, f- I feel like you, just from my, my own opinion, my perspective, I, you do a really good job at what you do. Oh, thank um, you. You've said to me personally, and I've heard you say it on the show, both shows, I think, that you feel like this is your calling. Um, this is, you know, you've sort of narrowed it down to this. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do. A lot of people don't narrow down. They just, I'm in L.A., you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. Let me do what Being I Being like in Los to do. Angeles is my calling. And actually, that probably kind of could be. Could be, For sure. some people. Um, but you've, you've whittled it down to this, and you're doing it. You're doing it faithfully, and you're doing it with, uh, uh, I think, the proper level of respect for film, mm-hmm. for the listener. Um, sometimes not for the guest, but no, that's not true. Uh, I have total respect for most guests. You let me make tea before <laughs> before we started, and I hate the concept of tea. tea. So, so there you go. It's really so, something. Uh, I just want to say, just sort of blanket statement, and yet specific at the same time. Great work. I, I really admire what you do. Well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that, and uh, I appreciate your support as well as the support of all the of all the listeners, which we've gotten. I've gotten uh, quite a bit, and uh, I actually will be addressing that directly uh, in an in an upcoming minisode. Minisode. That's right. Um, but I do appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Um, oh man, I'm all embarrassed now. Gosh, but uh, it's all red. But anyway, so um, now, Robert, I never remember. Is there a? Uh, you're not much of an online presence. Like, do you have Twitter? I forget. No Twitter. No Twitter. Do you have a website? Uh, no, not really. I used to, uh, me and my buddies, used to, my buddies Tim and Jeff, uh, used to write for a website called Third Chair Trombone. Yes, that's Which right. we created, mm-hmm. um, and all content was by us, us three, occasionally by our friend Brad. Okay. Um, but that's sort of lay fallow, lied fallow. It's been defunct for a oh, while. Okay. Um, and none of us have contributed, but you can always go back and read those. There's a lot of fun. Okay. Um, but I don't have a website now. I, I'm on Facebook. I bet, do you really want to say that? Nah. No, because really. everyone is. Well, so what no. I will say is that, uh, you do occasionally, not very often, but that's all right. Now that <laughs> I don't really write for my own site very often either. Um, but you have occasionally written, uh, blogs for more than one lesson. So I've enjoyed uh, writing those. Yeah. So you can search for his blogs. They're very interesting and they're not, uh, one thing that I, you know, as long as we're, uh, you know, patting each other on the back. Um, one thing that I do like is, uh, 
your objective approach to things. Like, for example, I'm a big fan of Mike Lee, and I feel like you are as well. Um, he's great. He's great, but your approach to um, another year was clear-eyed. You know, you, you didn't say, like, well, it's Mike Lee, and I like Mike Lee, and thus I will like this, and that's how it works. You right, know, you, uh, right. you approached it the way it should be approached, which is, you know, sort of trying to erase the good or the bad from, from your mind. You know, always let yourself well, be you. surprised. So, so yeah, uh, so that's one article that's actually very interesting is about uh, Mike Lee's Another Year. And uh, I think Barney's version is, is Barney's maybe the version, most recent. There's uh, a Touch of Evil. There oh, yes. There's uh, Last Temptation of Christ. That's right, yes. Long-winded. That's all right. That's yeah. Uh, this episode's an hour forty-three. We'll be fine. Awesome. So um, I'm actually pleased that it ended so soon. So uh, so yeah, Robert. Thank you very much for being here. I, I hope I you enjoyed, enjoyed yourself. It. All right. Very much. Thank you for asking me. Okay. A uh, couple of quick things. Uh, this will be going up the thirty-first or the first. Uh, really, whenever I get to it. Uh, but September third at Meltdown Comics. On Sunset Boulevard, that's 7522 Sunset Boulevard, uh, Battleship Pretension Live will be going on. Uh, David and I will be uh, hosting it, and the performers will be King of TV Paul Goebel, uh, comedian Benny Arthur, uh, actress and comedian and former SNL uh, cast member Lorraine Newman, and, of course, the happiest man on earth, Bill Dwyer, is uh, going to be our headliner. And so admission is uh, $10, or if you go to BattleshipPretension.com and order your tickets online, they are $8 each. So uh, we would really like a, a nice turnout, so uh, please uh, go to that. Uh, you can go to MoreThanOneLesson.com. There is some new content from time to time, uh, whether it be a blog written by me or somebody else. There's, of course, uh, links to various sermons. I was recently a guest on Mike Siegel's Travel Tales podcast, and that was a lot of fun. So you can, you can find all that on uh, morethanonelesson.com, and you can email me, tyler, at morethanonelesson.com, and you can also find me on Twitter, that's at morelessons. So uh, thank, you for, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you again, Robert, for coming. Thank you. And I'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>